Well, I'd like us to focus our thoughts this evening uh, on the 65th Psalm, Psalm 65. It is recognized in Scripture as a harvest psalm, and we'll think a little bit more uh, about it together in a short while. But we're going to read it now, and then I think we're going to sing again before we uh, hear from uh, this particular passage. But let's let's hear God's Word, uh, reading from Psalm 65. Praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion, and to you the vow shall be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. By awesome deeds in righteousness, you will answer us, O God of our salvation, you who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of the far-off seas, who established the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power, you who still the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. They also who dwell in the farthest parts are afraid of your signs. You make the outgoings of the morning and evening rejoice. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows. You make it soft with showers. You bless its growth. You crown the year with your goodness, and your paths drip with abundance. They drop on the pastures of the wilderness, and the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered with grain. They shout for joy. They also sing. Well, it will help to have your Bible or your device, if you use one of those, open before you as we look together at this particular psalm. Uh, I think it must have been a few years ago now that the Department for Education and Science uh, published guidance for RE teachers, for teachers of religious education, uh, for Key Stage 1 and 2, in answer to this question, what is a harvest festival? And uh, teachers were told that children should learn two things. First of all, that some Christians like to say thank you to God for the harvest. And second, that there are times in their own lives when they want to say thank you. That is official government guidance to the teachers of our land on Harvest Festival or Harvest Thanksgiving Sundays. Now, I'm sure you haven't missed the irony in that first statement that I read. It is sadly true, isn't it? In our day and age, only some Christians, only some church families, and mostly in rural areas, still see the relevance of celebrating God's blessing in the harvest. 
We seek to have a harvest in Leeds uh, every September or October if we can't fit it into September. Um, and uh, we do that. Uh, I've been doing that since I became the pastor there. When I began my ministry some 17 years ago, uh, we didn't hel- celebrate uh, harvest. And that was one of the things that uh, I introduced to the church family. Yet there are many churches, I'm sure, across Chorley, across Lancashire, across Yorkshire, that have no plans to set aside a day as we have today to give thanks to God for the harvest. But it does us all good, doesn't it, to pause, to reflect on the daily blessings that we all enjoy. And we're going to do that as we meditate together on Psalm 65. Its message is simple. It tells us of our good God who gives us all good gifts. And the author of the psalm draws our attention to the fact that our creator God, the one who is in control of all things, is gracious to the human race, is powerful in his acts, and is the source of all this world's bounty. As I said a few moments ago, this psalm is described as one of the Scripture's harvest hymns. If you've ever been asked or asked the question yourself, where in the Bible does it say we should have a harvest celebration? Well, this is the answer. King David wrote this psalm for the people of Israel so that they could sing it in praise to God at harvest time. The Jews referred to the harvest as the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm sure if you know your Old Testament, you've come across that term. And it was the longest and the most joyful of all the Old Testament feasts. It began on the 15th day of the seventh month, which was kept as a Sabbath. And the celebrations continued nonstop until the 22nd day of the month, which was also a Sabbath, which means that it lasted a full eight days in total. Now, you're probably relieved to think that we're only celebrating one uh, Harvest Sunday this year. But in the Old Testament, the Lord's people gave him thanks for eight days solid for his provision for their material needs. And the purpose of the feast, of course, was to thank God for his goodness, to thank him for his mercy in providing yet another bountiful harvest. Now, if you want to learn more about this, you need to go back to the book of Numbers and chapter 29, and beginning at verse 12 and through uh, the chapter, it will explain all that happened and all that was put in place by God for his people to enable them to be a truly thankful people. But as we unpack this particular psalm together, I want to look at it in three sections. It is clearly in three sections in our uh, Bibles, and I think what we see in each of these three sections is something that is wonderfully true about our God, wonderfully true about our Heavenly Father. And the first of them we see in the first four verses. And these verses tell us or reveal to us that our God is a God of amazing grace. As with this morning, I'm using the NIV, so I'm going to read the first four verses from it. And then you'll need to work with me a little bit as we understand how this reveals the graciousness of God to us uh, today. So verses 1 to 4, Praise await you, our God in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. You who answer prayer, 
to you all people will come. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgive our transgressions. Blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. Now, we might have expected a hymn that was written for the praise of the people of Israel to be limited only to them. But I want you to notice that that is not the case. Although the psalm tells us and begins with the words, praise awaits uh, our God in Zion or in Jerusalem, uh, that's where the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated. If you look at verse 2, it recognizes that God is the one who hears the prayers of all who come to you. To you, all people will come. Now, some of you may have heard of universalism. It's an error that teaches that in the end, all people will be saved. And those who hold to this kind of thinking argue that God's mercy and Christ's sacrifice on the cross are so great that everyone will eventually be forgiven and everyone will eventually enter the new heavens and the new earth. Now that view is widely held today. It thrives where people believe that all faiths and all religions are basically the same. Therefore, it is attractive in a multi-faith, pluralistic culture such as our own. It thrives where people magnify the love of God at the expense of his justice and holiness. And it completely ignores the teaching of our Lord Jesus in John 3 and verse 36, where he says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Why? For God's wrath remains on them. Now, the distinction that Jesus draws there between those who believe in him as Savior and Lord and those who don't is absolutely radical in this life, and it has eternal consequences. Failure to trust in Jesus for salvation ultimately leads to eternal damnation for those made in his image. People who are, whether they choose to acknowledge it or not, accountable to the one who made them, the one who frames the world in which they live. If they follow this logic, they will be lost. So when David says, addresses God and says, all people will come to you, he's not teaching that kind of universalism that so many people espouse today and find so attractive in our culture. No, he's, he's talking about what we might call biblical universalism. Now you might say, okay, what's that? What's biblical universalism? Well, it's the basic message of the Bible that God will accept anyone of whatever race or ethnic background or social grouping that comes to him, the only true God, through his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, this is exactly what Jesus taught in the story of the Samaritan woman that we find in John chapter 4. You remember the occasion? Uh, he uh, and his disciples have arrived at this particular village. Uh, they're all hungry, so they disappear to find some food. Jesus sits down by a well, and a woman approaches him. 
Uh, and he answers her in the conversation by saying that only Jehovah, only the God of Israel is the true God and that he was to be worshipped in Jerusalem as he had commanded. John 4.22, he says this, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We, that is the Jews, worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now notice, when Jesus began this conversation with his woman, he did not advocate a multi-faith approach. When she comes to him, he doesn't tell her that her approach to God is just as acceptable as that of the Jewish people. No, what he says to her is exclusive. He's saying, in effect, there's only one true God, the God of the Jews, the Creator, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Having said that, I want you to notice that he welcomes her nevertheless. As well as pointing to a day when people will worship neither in Jerusalem and Samaria, but in spirit and truth because of the changes that he himself is going to bring about at the Messiah, as the Messiah. Verse 24, God is spirit, he says, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Jesus, in, in compassion and love, tells this woman, the truth. And he invites her to believe in the one true and living God. And that's significant because she wasn't Jewish. She was a Gentile. God's invitation uh, to eternal life extends to all people everywhere. And that is what I mean by the term biblical universalism. And we see it in the psalm here. We see it in verse 5, where God, we're told, is the hope of all the ends of the earth. Where we're told in verse 8 that the whole earth is full of your wonders, and that includes the wonder of wonders, our salvation. So if the psalmist is not teaching that everyone without exception is going to get to heaven, on what basis is this promise to all the peoples of the earth going to be fulfilled? What's he getting at here? Well, look at verse 3. In the NIV, it says, When we were overwhelmed by sin, you forgave our transgressions. The ESV has it, When iniquities prevailed against me, you atone for our transgressions. Key word is atonement. Atonement has to be made by God in order for the people of this world to enjoy the salvation and the blessing of God. Why atonement? Why the need for forgiveness? Well, Isaiah explains our problem in Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, where he writes this, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Now, bear with me here. We need to see the amazing grace of God at work here. The problem wasn't God's problem. God was able to save, says Isaiah. What's more, he was willing to hear our prayers. But our sin separated us from him and caused his face to be hidden from us. And yet, 
even though, if you like, the sin and the guilt were ours, even though we deserved to face the consequences of those sins, how did God respond? Verse 3, in grace. When we were overwhelmed by sins, how did you respond? You forgave. You forgave. The initiative was God's, and the eternal blessing was ours to enjoy. You see, one of the most striking things that this psalm uh, shows us is that it is God who provides atonement for us. As we were thinking this morning, no human being is capable of atoning for his or her own sin. doesn't matter how religious you become, how kind and charitable you may be. Atonement, the forgiveness of sin through the death of Christ as our substitute, is God's free and sovereign act. You forgave, says the psalmist. You are gracious, amazingly so. And all this because that is how you are. God blesses those who've been brought near to him through the blood of Jesus by removing the barrier of sin. Verse 4, blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We're filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. Now that's another way of saying we are richly blessed in your presence. Why is that the case for any of us? It is only because we have a God who shows us amazing grace. So this song is all about the good gifts of a good God that are freely bestowed on us. And the first of those gifts I would suggest to you is God's amazing, saving grace, which everyone who trusts in Jesus enjoys. And at this harvest occasion, when we're... uh, minded to think of material things, and that's right that we do so, here at the beginning of the psalm, our hearts are drawn to think of the salvation that's been accomplished for us by grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we learn that this good God is amazingly gracious to undeserving sinners like us. He delights to forgive. He delights to bless. And his design is to make all things new in Christ. And that includes you, and it includes me. So therefore, we should worship this God with all that we are and have. So that's the first thing. Our God is a God of amazing grace. You'll be pleased to hear that the final two points are shorter than the first one. But the second point is this. Our God is a God of awesome power. Our God is a God of awesome power, and I'm just conscious as I say that, that it doesn't match what I put on the slide. But hey, I'm just making sure that you're all awake and paying attention. Verses 5 through to 8, and again, it's in the NIV. The psalmist writes, you answer us with awesome and righteous deeds. God, our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the forest seas, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, who still the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. That's important in our day, isn't it? The whole earth is filled with awe at your wonders, where morning dawns, where evening fades. You call forth songs of joy. Now, it's one thing uh, for God to be gracious, and He is. 
It's quite another that God has the ability, the power to work in this world and to help others in this world. I don't know if you remember, uh, probably going back maybe 15 years now, my memory isn't all it used to be, um, there was a, a siege in a cinema in Ossetia in a city called Beslan. Some of you may remember that. There were many children and uh, adults uh, involved. They were taken hostage by a group of terrorists. Their intentions were very clear that they were going to begin to kill all of these children. And uh, the, the local troops, in an effort to save life, took the decision to storm the building when it became clear the terrorists were going to not negotiate but carry out their threats. And things did not go well. Many children lost their lives in that particular um, mission. And one of the images that sticks in my mind is that of a, a soldier holding the body of a dead child in his arms. And agony and anguish are etched upon his face. It was so moving to see it. Now, now why anguish? Why agony? Well, no doubt, like his colleagues, he had given everything to protect every man and woman and child in that school that day. It was a school, not a cinema. But he just couldn't do it. He didn't have the power. He didn't have the ability. He wanted to save every last one of them, but it was beyond him. And the pain of that was clear for all to see. But it is not that way with God. Our God is gracious, but He is mighty as well. And that is the message of this second section Because God's grace is made effective in our lives and in this world by His power. And here the psalmist tells us three specific ways that God shows His power. Verse 6, He formed the mountains. Verse 7, beginning, He stills the seas. At the end of verse 7, He subdues the nations. Now the high mountains and the turbulent power of the oceans are some of the most awesome displays of nature that we can witness, aren't they? I remember as a, as a family, we, we went on holiday to Portugal one, day, uh, one year, and, and not one day, uh, the flights aren't cheap enough for that, um, but we went uh, to, to a holiday on the Atlantic coast, and we found this amazing beach. It was just wonderful, and, and we had a wonderful day on this particular beach, and we went back uh, the following year, just a year later, and we thought, yeah, you remember that beach? That was great. Let's go and spend the day on that particular beach, and we turned up, and the beach was gone. It was completely strewn with boulders and rocks. Why? Because over the winter, there'd been massive storms that had churned up the seabed and just deposited all of this rubble all over our precious beach. And it just reminded us of the awesome power of nature, the awesome power of the oceans. And whether it's the the, the lofty grandeur of the Alps or the Himalayas or the great swell of the oceans, the psalmist reminds us it is God who is in control of all of it. He's the Creator He's the one who holds it all in the palm of his hand. What we're used to referring as the wonders of nature are the result of God's creative power. 
And we, we sing about that, don't we, in, in some of our uh, harvest hymns. It wasn't the one that I mentioned to earlier, but we didn't sing, today we plough the fields and scatter. But we know the words, don't we? Uh, we plough the fields and scatter, the good seed on the land, but it is fed and watered by God's almighty hand. He sends the snow in winter, the warmth to swell the grain, the breezes and the sunshine, and soft, refreshing rain. Now notice before we move to our final point that God doesn't just rule over nature, but he rules over all his creatures too. Verse, uh, end of verse 7, we talk about him subduing the nations. He rules also, verse 8, everywhere. Everywhere where morning dawns and where evening fades, our God reigns. Isn't that true? His reign, his dominion is vast. It is universal. And that's why we claim that Jesus and Jesus alone is the hope of the nations. All rule, all authority has been given to him by the Father. Isn't that what he says to his disciples in Matthew 28 at the end of that particular gospel? And the only hope for a fallen creation and fallen creatures like us, is the redemption that Jesus purchased on the cross. He is the Savior of the world, and in saying that, I mean that He is the only one in all the world who can restore everything that sin has marred and spoiled and is destroying. And the greatest demonstration of God's power in creation was what? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, wasn't it? But you know, that was just a foretaste of the great restoration that the Bible tells us will come at the end of the age. Because then God will demonstrate His power in raising all His people in resurrection bodies to enjoy the glories of the new heavens and the new earth. And then we will enjoy the harvest to end all harvests the harvest that Isaiah the prophet speaks about in Isaiah 25 and verse 6. This is what he writes. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines, not grape juice or ribena, wine, and the finest thereof. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. So there is a harvest coming that will be beyond our imagining in the new heavens and the new earth as we sit down with all of God's people before the King and celebrate what He has accomplished for us through His amazing grace and through His almighty power. And isn't it amazing to think that the Apostle Paul talks about that resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead being at work in His people's lives, in our lives, in your heart, in my heart, every day, that same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is at work among us as his people today. And that surely is an encouragement as we seek to live for his glory. So we've seen our God as a God of amazing grace. 
He's a God of awesome power. And he's finally, in the final section, the God of plenty. Verse 9, you care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain. For so you have ordained it. There's his control, his power over all things. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty. And your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks. And the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. Now this is the climax of the psalm. So the God who is gracious to his people and who has the power to perform all that he purposes on earth has shown this grace and this power in blessing the land, in blessing the harvest. And we're told that God blesses the land by watering it. Notice the references there to water and streams and drenching in verses 9 and 10. Now, Israel isn't like England. I've never been to Israel, but I know it's not like England. Uh, It's a very barren and dry place by comparison, unless there is artificial irrigation employed. Uh, and here we're, we're reminded uh, that, that uh, uh, plentiful showers, lots and lots of rain, according to the psalmist, is a great blessing. Because in Israel, it meant the blessing of life over death. It meant that life could exist, that crops could grow. So while we might uh, you know, be inclined to grumble about the, the rain and how much rain we have in this country. I know it's not been the case in the last 12 months, but normally we complain, don't we, about too much rain. According to the Scriptures, rain is a result of God's blessing on us. It is something to be thankful to the Lord for. And then we're told of the crops. In verse 10, you bless its crops. Now, every farmer gains great satisfaction when the faintest hint of green begins to show uh, as the crop begins to germinate. And that satisfaction grows as the crop matures and ripens as the week, uh, weeks lead on toward harvest time. And farmers work hard and long. They plan, they prepare, they watch until everything is just right. But of course, it is not the farmer who causes the crop to grow. It is God who does that. And for any God-fearing farmer, the abundance of God in granting another ripe crop for harvest is a great matter for praise and thanksgiving. So on this Harvest Sunday, the psalmist reminds us that the plenty that we enjoy in this land of ours is not the result of more efficient crop strains or better pesticides and fertilizers or better farming methods, although all those things play their part, but is rather the proof that a gracious, all-powerful God continues to provide for His creatures. And we who are Christians, we who, who know Jesus by faith, have all the more reason to thank Him for His good gifts, which is why it's such a shame that so many churches neglect to thank the Lord of the harvest each year. This morning we saw that a a failure to acknowledge God's material blessings can lead us down a path of, of greed and stinginess to the accumulation of wealth and possessions. But you see, to counter that, we need to recognize that everything we have, 
uh, and we have more than any other generation of people that have ever lived in the history of our world materially. We are rich by comparison to many, many people around the world. And when we realize that that itself is evidence of God's grace toward us, it should make us both grateful and generous. It should help us to understand that God's gracious gifts to us aren't deserved gifts, and that means that we're free then to let them go. We're free then to give them away generously to other people. As we close, I want to draw our attention to the last line of the psalm. It's striking and it's unexpected because having described how God has watered the earth and caused it to produce crops, David suddenly says, the hills are clothed with gladness and the meadows and valleys shout for joy and sing. Now that, of course, is Hebrew poetry. It's poetic language. As far as I know, hills and valleys and crops and meadows don't literally shout or sing. But the point I think that David wants to make is that in their harvest splendor, these things seem to shout and sing, as if they'd awakened after a long dead winter. Besides, if they could cry out, if they could literally sing out, they would. Wouldn't they? Well, Jesus said they would on one occasion. Remember when he was entering Jerusalem for the last time? What we celebrate is Palm Sunday. Surrounded by disciples and crowds of people, and they're praising him and singing Hosanna. And the Pharisees ask him to, to rebuke his disciples, to rebuke the crowd. And what does Jesus say? Luke 19 and verse 40, I tell you, he replied, if they, if these people don't declare my praise and my worth, the stones will cry out. Now, when you think of harvest in those terms, isn't it a tragedy that men and women made in God's image never think to give thanks to God for His gracious provision for their daily needs? While the natural world, in all its beauty, in all its majesty and splendor, would readily sing the praise of our great Creator and Redeemer. Well, may God save us from taking His abundant provision for granted and make us a truly thankful people as we remember that our God is a God of amazing grace. He is a God of awesome power and He is a God of great abundance and plenty who loves us and cares for us in every way. To him be all the glory and all the praise. Join me as we pray. Father, we bow before you and we ask that you would forgive us for our lack of gratitude. We recognize, Lord, that there are so many things were we to sit down and uh, take the time to count your blessings, it would amaze us what you have done for each one of us. Yes, Lord, we're aware of hard things and difficulties and challenges in our lives. But Lord, around all of that, we recognize that you're the one who gives us breath and life and all things to enjoy. And we do thank you for that.
kindness and that provision. But above everything else, Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace to us. We thank you that when we were lost in trespasses and sins, when we were dead and beyond hope, you in grace reached out to us, drew us in those arms of love. We thank you for the day when you opened our eyes to see Jesus in all his beauty and majesty, when you enabled us to confess our sin, to acknowledge our sin before you, and to ask for your forgiveness. Lord, we thank you that you heard those prayers. And we thank you from the, that from that moment to this, you've never failed us or let us down. And we know that you won't forsake us. And we know that you're gloriously faithful. It just grieves us, Lord, that we're not like that. We can forsake you. that We can be faithless at times. And yet your love toward us remains constant. You never leave us. You always hold on to us. Your purposes for each of us will be fulfilled so that you might be glorified. So may these reflections, Lord, on your gracious provision for us encourage us as we face a new week together. May we go into it conscious that you're always with us in the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, loving and standing upon the truth of your word and pointing others to Jesus, our glorious Redeemer and King. So help us in all these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.